here a year and a half. Last week was the first time no one ever clapped. And, and I didn't think it was that bad of a message. I mean, it wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible, you know. And all I said was, we should pray. <laughs> now, I said a little bit more than that. Okay, fair enough. But the scripture is clear. It says, this is why you pay tax. Maybe that's why they didn't clap. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants. And this is Southern California. It's just a rebellious place. You know, it's just the way it is. And uh, who give their full attention, a full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And I concluded by referring to passages in the scripture which talk about whom we are to honor. And Peter says we're to honor the king. Keep in mind, Peter wrote during the time when the king was Nero. If there was a man who we would say ought not to be honored, well, he was one of the many that we could point our fingers to. But Peter says, honor the king. And of course, Peter would suffer under the hands of that king whom he said we are to honor. Not only are we to honor the king, the scripture says, but we are also to honor our fathers and mothers. Today is Mother's Day. And so in Exodus chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother that your life may be long on the earth. Uh, Paul quotes that passage in the book of Ephesians. So we're to honor our parents. We're to honor the king, honor our parents. One of my favorite passages, we're to honor those elders that serve well, particularly those who teach the word with double honor. And, uh, you know, can't preach on that passage too frequently, but can't preach on it too infrequently either, you know, but is worthy of double honor. And so we're to honor those who serve in the body of Messiah. Most importantly, we are to honor God. We are to reverence him. Now, as Paul thinks of those words that he has just written about honoring, he then continues this theme of honor. And so in verse 8, he says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, you know, in the King James Version, it says, O man, nothing but to love him. But the truth of the matter is, it isn't that we aren't uh, told that we cannot have debt. It's not that we're not permitted to borrow. Some people have suggested this from this passage, that you ought to not have any debt, no mortgages, no car uh, loans or whatever. But if you look at Matthew chapter 5, for example, this can't be what Paul means in the passage, because in Matthew chapter 5, looking at verse uh, 42, if I'm not mistaken, Yeshua says, give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So we are permitted to lend money and we are permitted to borrow, whatever it might be. Paul's point is, if you are a borrower, pay your debts on time. If you are renting, 
pay your rent on time. If you are, if you have a mortgage, pay your mortgage payments on time. If you have a car loan, pay your car loan on time. If you've borrowed from a friend, pay your friend back. That's what Paul is saying. Don't have any outstanding debts in which you have not fulfilled your obligation to the one who is benefiting you by what he is or providing for you or what has been loaned to you. But if there is a debt that we can never repay, if there is an obligation that we have that is ongoing and is never fulfilled, never paid, it is the debt to love one another, Paul tells us. He says, you continue to love, and when the day is done, you have not loved enough. There is still more room for love, he says. And when he quotes the various commandments, I love how he concludes when he says, love is the fulfilling of the law. You have to believe that Paul was well aware of many of the teachings of the Messiah himself. Because when he was asked... What was the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might. And then he said to love your neighbor as yourself. And in this is the law summed up that we love God and that we love our neighbor. Paul is saying the very same thing here. He's saying the fulfillment of the law. That is another way of saying the fulfillment of the law and the prophets is by our love one for another. How we respect one another. When he says thou shalt not commit adultery, he's saying are we respecting the spouses of each other? Are we respecting the men and women that are in our midst? Are we truly loving them by respecting them and recognizing their turf as it were? Joseph is a great example in this, isn't he? Because when he was being seduced by Potiphar's wife, He had said, how could I ever raise my hand against this one who has done so much for me? He's put everything into my care. And now am I going to turn on him and violate his wife? That would be unloving on my part. It would be the wrong thing to do with regard to my obligation to love my neighbor as Myself. Very interesting passage in that section when you think of what, Joseph, what went through Joseph's mind. And a young man at around 17 or 18 years old, and yet he knew the distinction between what was right, what was wrong, what was loving, and what was not. When he speaks of coveting, the whole focus on coveting is that when we see the things that others have, can we rejoice in that they possess those things? Or then do we then turn around and say, well, then I want those things too. We live in a society where coveting is a real challenge. Walk through the malls and the first thing that comes to your mind is, I wish I had that blouse. I wish I had that dress. I wish I had those slacks. I wish I had that suit. I wish I could afford those, those shoes. And I wish I looked like the photographs of those models that are in there, you know, displaying all those things. And so one of the worst places we can do is spending too much time in malls because what are malls telling us? We need this stuff, even though we may not afford it. And even though we don't really need it. Coveting has that effect on us. And it makes us desire what other people have rather than to rejoice and relax in the things that God has already provided for us. Because remember, the Lord knows our needs even before we ask. 
And thus loving our neighbor is that we do not look at our neighbor and say, I wish I had what he or she may possess or what they have accomplished or what they do with their lives or what they have come to experience. And so love means that we put others first. It's also interesting here. He says, love one another, which is a focus on that we are to love each other in the body of Messiah. Usually that's how Paul uses the phrase one another. But it is interesting that he goes on to say, let no debt remain except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man. So one another here can't mean just those who are our brothers and sisters in Messiah. It means everyone we are to love. And perhaps one of the most challenging ways in which we are to love one another is by forgiving one another. By not holding people accountable for the wrongs they do to us. And so these are challenging words indeed. But here's the warning in verse 11. He says, and do this understanding the present time. Paul is concerned that we realize the day and age in which we live. Sometimes people have used this phrase with regard to prophetic truth. When he says, and do this understanding, the Greek actually says, understanding the times. But he certainly means understanding the time in which one lives. You remember that Yeshua at one point was confronted by his critics And they said, show us a sign that you are truly the Messiah. And Yeshua says, it is a sinful and adulterous generation that seeks after signs. And he says, you talk about signs, but you do not know how to read the signs. You say in the morning that it is a, uh, that it is a red sky and you know you need to be careful about the weather. And you look at the sky at night and you see it's a red sky and you know that it's going to be a nice day. Sailors have that saying, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. It's interesting how that works, and yet it's always the case. It has something to do with the atmospheric stuff that goes on. But the fact of the matter is, Paul said, or Yeshua said, we may be able to read the signs in the sky and know what kind of weather is coming, but we are not very good at looking at the signs among us and knowing where we stand. And knowing the condition of the world or even the condition of our own heart. In First Chronicles chapter 12, you remember that the tribe of Issachar was a tribe about which it is said they knew the times, they understood the times, and they knew what to do. That is what Paul is concerned about. That we would not only be able to look at the times in which we live, to look at the experiences in our lives, but also be able to know what to do as a result of it. What it is we are to do is to love. But look what he goes on to say. He says, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Somehow he's concerned that these believers in Rome have not yet fully comprehended what's going on in the world. And that in effect, he says, they are still full of sleep and they need to wake up and realize what is going on around us. There are two incidences that immediately came to my mind when I read those words. One is Jonah. Because you remember, God calls Jonah to be a witness, his prophetic voice to the people of Assyria. People that he would prefer not to go near at all. People he would prefer not to love. Well, they were wicked people. There's no question about it. And the way they 
misused their enemies and punished those that they wanted to put down is just horrible to reflect upon. Violent in nature like one has no idea. And now Jonah, the only prophet sent to the Gentiles among Israel, is called to go to the Assyrians and he is not happy about it. Jonah's other problem is not only does he know who the Assyrians are and what they're like, but he also knows what God is like. And he knows that God is a compassionate God, that he is long-suffering, that he desires and delights in doing good and not judging. And he knows that if I speak God's truth effectively... And if God energizes me in my presenting of His truth as He's calling me to do, these people might turn to Him. And if they repent and turn, He will forgive them. And I don't want them forgiven. So Jonah runs. And he keeps going down, down, down. That's the key word in the first chapter of Jonah. Until he goes down to to Joppa, which is going down to Tarshish to sail far away from where Jonah is supposed to go. And then he goes down into the boat. And then he falls down into a sleep. And then he's thrown overboard and falls down into the ocean until he is then falls into the belly of a fish and falls down into its, his stomach and then falls down in death. You can't have a much more a graphic portrayal of an individual that runs from God and where that individual will end up. But before he gets all the way down into the fish, we find him asleep in the boat. And it's there that these pagan sailors wake him up and tell him what is afoot. Then Jonah understands the times. He understands what's going on. He says to them, first of all, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a prophet of God. God has called me and I'm running from him. I'm sure when these pagans heard that, that was not too encouraging. And then further, he tells them that there is an antidote to this. It is to throw me overboard. You have to say to these pagans, they resist that as long as they can. But the storm continues to increase and the prophet has said, throw me over. And finally, they throw him overboard. When one falls asleep, he becomes ignorant of what is happening around them. And then in in a way, becomes incapable of doing anything about the situation in which they are faced. The other account that came immediately to my mind were the disciples of Messiah in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he goes with them and asks them to spend some time, three hours, to pray with him, they fall asleep. He has to wake them periodically. Please pray with me. Support me. Be an encouragement to me. Come before me. But really, I think Yeshua was concerned for his disciples, perhaps more than himself. Because in failing to pray, they were incapable of dealing with the situation as it began to unfold. And they all deserted him. Why? Because they did not have the fortitude to stand up to the challenge that they are faced with. Their failure to pray made them inadequate to serve their master when he needed them most. So Paul is saying here, we need to understand the times that we might wake up. 
So what are our times characterized by today? Paul says, you can see this first in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. You can see it in Ephesians chapter 1. We live in a day and age that Paul refers to as an evil age. It's hard for me to say that living in Southern California because all you have to do is go down to the beach and you say, what's so evil about this? You can go out through the mountains and see the beauty of the hills and the green and I just love it out here. And yet I have to be reminded, we live in a desperately evil time. That is not to say that the times can't get worse, so there weren't other evil times, but this is an evil age. This is the age in which the prince of the power of the air has sway. Not full sway, his sway is always limited by God's commands and God's will. But nevertheless, he is not bound. And thus he's the prince of the power of the air, the scripture says. He goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Like in the book of Job, he stands before God and he accuses the brethren. This is an evil moment, but we have no clue to the degree to which it is evil because our eyes are not really open, as Paul says. We don't understand the times and we are asleep in the midst of a moment that is in desperate need. If you consider the lifetime of one individual in 70 years on average, their life is over and they face an eternal moment that will last forever. And so this is an evil age with great risk. We come into this world separated by God. Separated from that one about whom we will be separated for all of eternity. If within that 70 year period, if we are so privileged to have it, to do something wise. We must understand the time and wake up from our sleep that we might be ones who will be able to benefit from what is afoot. So it's an evil time that we must understand. But it's not only an evil time, it's a time in which the good news is available to everyone and anyone who would respond unto it. When Yeshua stood in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and quoted Isaiah chapter 61, he said, now is the acceptable age. Now is the time of our salvation. Not the time of the vengeance of God, but the time of salvation. We're living in a time in which Messiah has already come, given his life a ransom for many. This is the time that we have to respond to his good news, both in salvation as well as in service. It is an evil time, but it's also a time of opportunity to experience salvation full and free. This is a time that's not only a time that is evil, it's not only a time in which the gospel can be presented, the good news of Messiah. This is a time in which we are called to go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Every Sunday we say the Lord has given us power to be his witnesses. This is a time to witness for him. This is not just a time to come together to worship, although it is a time of worship. It is a time to serve and it's a time to reach out. It's a time to invest ourselves in the lives of others and not only our own interests or our own needs or our own desires. It is a time to love our neighbor as ourselves. As Paul says, we have that debt that will never be paid. And thus he says we need to wake up from our slumber, from our sleep, 
knowing that the time is short. It's an evil age, but it's an age in which the good news can be proclaimed. It's an age in which we are called to go to the ends of the earth. But it's an age that is quickly coming to an end. Our Lord has told us He's coming again. And the time is shorter now than it ever was before. Well, that makes sense, given where we are. But it's a time in which Israel is regathered in her homeland. It's a time in which we're seeing the veil, as it were, it appears to be, be, is being removed to some degree. We're seeing more Jewish people coming to faith now than we have in many, many centuries. And this is not by chance or happenstance. It is in accordance with God's plan of the ages. And so the question is, are we living at a time in which the Lord may come soon? He can come at any moment. Yeshua said, no man knows the day or the hour. When his own disciples asked him, will you at this time establish your kingdom? He said, this is not the time for the kingdom. But this is the time for you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. But it is a time that will be brought to an end. And a time that is growing shorter by each day. It is growing shorter for us personally. But it's also it is growing shorter for humanity in general. And the Lord is going to come. And so Paul says we have a debt to love. And the greatest way we can demonstrate that debt of love is by sharing the love of God that was demonstrated by Messiah's coming into our world and giving his life a ransom for many. When I think of this idea of love, I can't help but reflect on Yeshua's words to Peter. After Peter had denied the Lord three times, he gathers with him personally at the end during the time of his resurrection. And he takes Peter aside. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Now he says to Peter, do you agapao me? Do you love me sacrificially? Love me with the greatest kind of love that is possibly expressed in the Greek word agapao, to love. Peter And he says, do you agapao me more than these? Because you remember Peter had said, though they deny you, I never will. And so he was saying, I love you more than these other disciples. And now he showed himself that he didn't because he denied him three times. And when told of his resurrection, he was only perplexed by it and didn't embrace it until Yeshua showed up for him to see. John, on the other hand, you'll remember, looks in the tube, sees the grave cloths removed in a unique way, folded in a unique way, and it says that he believed when he saw. But Peter was with him and did not believe, for he leaves the tomb perplexed and sort of in a quandary. What is going on here? The Lord will show up to Peter, and Peter now realizes he has been raised, and he embraces him as such. But now at the end of this period of time, That Yeshua is appearing to his disciples. He says to Peter, takes him aside and he says, Do you love me more than these? Do you agapao me more than these? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you as a friend. And Yeshua says, feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. It's interesting, Peter is the writer of the Gospel of Mark. In which he takes care of the sheep as it were, through this written document that tells us of the Messiah. Yeshua asks him a second time, 
and says, Peter, do you agapao me at all? I'm not asking, do you agapao me more than the disciples, but do you agapao me? Do you agapao me at all? And Peter says, Lord, I phileo you. I love you as a friend. And the Lord says, feed my sheep. And he writes First Peter to help those that he informed of Messiah to grow more deeply in that faith. Then Yeshua, in his great condescending grace and love, says to Peter, Peter, do you really phileo me? Do you really love me as a friend? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know I love you as a friend. And the Lord says, tend my sheep. And now he writes Second Peter, which brings those disciples into a deeper relationship with the Lord. Then the Lord says this to Peter. He says, there's going to come a time when individuals, where you were able to go wherever you wanted to go, but there's going to come a time when they're going to grab you and they're going to take you where you do not want to go. And by saying those words, he was telling him the manner in which he would die. Because then Peter looks over at John and says, well, how will he die? And Jesus, Yeshua says to him, you don't need to be worried about that. Just worry about what's happening with you. But the reason Yeshua says that is because he's telling Peter, right now you might only be able to phileo me, but the day will come when you will agapao me. For you will die for me. And you will thus demonstrate You just don't love me as a friend. You love me with all the love that one can love the Lord. That's a wonderful demonstration of the Lord's grace. Love does grow like that. When Paul says here, this debt of love, we start out by loving in little ways. But over time, we are to love in such deep ways. That sometimes that kind of love hurts very much. Now, one last thing. If I could just draw your attention to the conclusion of this passage. And then we'll pray. If you look at verse 12. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness. And put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently. As in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in uh, dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, and do not think about how to gravity, how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You know, there are passages in the scripture that are very uh, special to all of us. Philippians chapter 2, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think of others greater than yourselves, was a verse that has been very significant for me, because as God called me into service and into ministry, it was in connection with that passage, to think of others greater than yourselves. And if you are to serve me, then you have to think of others that way. That's sort of the passage that is riveted in my own heart about service and ministry. And there are all kinds of passages. John Newton was particularly 
uh, touched and grabbed by a passage in Exodus about being taken out of slavery. Because as you remember, John Newton not only was a slaver, but became a slave and then was saved by God's grace, not only from slavery, but from slavery to sin. And that idea of being taken out of bondage, uh, one of those passages was like his verse. Well, this passage in Romans, I, I just close it here. This passage in Romans, the moment I read it, I said, oh, that's the passage that led this individual to faith. But what a crazy passage to think of. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and all those things, but clothe yourself with the Lord Yeshua and uh, so that you don't gratify the things of the flesh. It's amazing the power of God's word. One of the characters, some things we may or may not like about him, but there are things that ones would not like about me either, and things that you might like about me. We're all a mixed bag, right? There's no such thing as good and bad people. There's just better and worse people. And so there are things about all of us that we would like to do without, and there are things about all of us that we can't help but embrace and love. Augustine is one of those characters. We may not like all the things he's written, but I'll tell you, 80, 90% of the things he's written has been critical to uh, the body of believers. Scholars have said between the time of Paul and the time of Luther, the greatest figure is this man, Augustine. And he was a man that the Lord won to himself. And he was a prolific writer. This is just a segment of very small. I mean, you go into a library and there's just his writings. You could spend 25 lifetimes trying to read them, let alone understand them. But one of the most significant books ever written was a book he wrote called The Confession, which was his testimony, how he came to faith. Now, he lived at 355. It's a long time ago, Middle Ages, 355. He died around 425. When he was, he was born in North Africa in a city called Tagaste. And his father was a pagan. His mother was a, a devoted believer that prayed for her son every day and all the time. He writes about her actions and her testimony and her example to him over this lifetime. His father wanted to be wealthy and wanted to be influential. So sent him to school in Carthage in North Africa, right across from Sicily. He went to school there, graduated, became a scholar in rhetoric. In the ancient world, that meant he was a person who made speeches on a variety of occasions, particularly in the interest of individuals for legal matters. So it's another way of saying he became a very well-known lawyer. And after he had graduated, he moved to Rome so that he would get, you know, hobnob with the wealthy and the influential, for this was the center of the empire. And he brought along with him his wife, Monica. And so she watched him as he developed. 16 years old, he's doing this, by the way. And at 16, while serving in this capacity in Rome, he ran around with all kinds of things in society. Sexual things, relationships with women, and he just behaved terribly as an individual. When he was 17, however, he hunkered down with one woman whom he was devoted to the rest of his life. 14 years later, he marries her, in fact, and spends the rest of their life together. So he wasn't one of these guys that was carousing around all his life. It was just that early time in his life, 16 years old. Well, that's kind of wild to think about that. But after he made his mark in Rome, the government hired him 
as a legal representative and moved him to Milan, just north of Rome. And in Milan was the greatest orator in the body of Messiah in the world at that time. A man by the name of Ambrose. And he had a very prestigious uh, congregation that he would be speaking to. He was a great orator, he was a great scholar, he was a great thinker, and Augustine was particularly impressed by his abilities. He went to see him only to just evaluate how well he spoke. But over time, the words that he spoke began to penetrate into his heart. And he started questioning his values. He started questioning the idea of a God to whom he was accountable. He tells us that while with his friend, that they were in a garden, they were talking about these matters, and it began to weigh heavily on his heart. So when he starts his confession, let me just read this section to you. This is how it starts. Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and of your wisdom there is no end. And man, being a part of your creation, desires to praise you. Man who bears about with him his mortality, the witness of his sin, even the witness that you resist the proud. Yet man, this part of your creation, desires to praise you. Here it is. You move us to delight in praising you. For you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you, O Lord. Is that, that alone is worth the whole price of the book. But later on in, in, in this confession, let me just read to you what happens that leads him to faith. That is just so remarkable with regard to God's goodness and God's grace. He's in this garden with a friend. They're discussing the, their own condition of their hearts. He's brought to a place of great Uh, intensity as he's reflecting. And this is what the text says. He wrote, I flung myself down. How? I know not. Under a certain fig tree. Uh, He says, under a certain fig tree, giving free course to my tears. And the stream of my eyes gushed out an acceptable sacrifice unto you, O Lord. And not indeed in these words, yet to this effect I spoke. But you, O Lord, how long? How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? O remember not against us our former iniquities? For I felt that I was enthralled by them. I sent up these sorrowful cries. How long? Tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why is there not this hour an end to my uncleanness? He says, I was saying these things. Weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart, when lo, I heard the voice, as of a boy or girl, I don't know which, coming from a neighboring house, chanting and often repeating, take up and read, take up and read. Immediately my countenance was changed. I began most earnestly to consider whether it was usual for children in any kind of game to sing such words. Nor can I remember ever to have heard the like. So restraining the torrent of my tears, I rose up, interpreting it in no other way than as a command to me from heaven to open the book and to read the first chapter I should look upon. For I had heard of Anthony, 
that accidentally coming in while the good news was being read, he received the admonition as if it was read to him. Go and sell what you have, give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And this individual did just that and became a monk. And by such oracle was he forthwith brought unto the Lord. So quickly I returned to the place where I and my friend were sitting. For there I had put down the volume of Paul. When I rose, I grasped open and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. Romans 13. But put you on the Lord Yeshua, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. No further would I read, nor did I need, for instantly as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Is that not wild? The guy hears some kids saying, take up and read. He opens the book, reads this thing, and he says, Lord, forgive me, for I have said... The word of God is powerful and it will do what it is accomplished. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it reaches down into the very soul of the individual. And it is life everlasting. The first thing he did, and this is what it says, Thence we went in to my mother and we made it known to her and she rejoiced. We related how it came to pass. She leaped for joy and triumphs and blesses you who are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. For she perceived you to have given her more for me than she used to ask by her own prayers. And thus he mentions that her joy and her heart were filled to overflowing. His mother prayed for him. Every day in his whole life. And as I said, he went through all of those terrible things. And now at this point, he comes to faith. And the first thing he does, he runs to his mother to say, Mom, I've accepted the Lord. And she then lifts up her voice and prays, Thank you, Lord. She dies a few days later. What an incredible answer to prayer. He was 30 years old when he came to faith. And he would serve the Lord another 40 when he would die at 70. Eventually he gave up this prestigious career. As one in rhetoric. And moved to an out of the way place. In Hippo. North Africa. To serve a small congregation of people. God called them to serve. And wrote the legacy of things that he had written. When we think of this man. We think he was in some great cathedral. Just not true. He was in a small body, serving where God had called him, using the gifts God had bestowed upon him. And to this day, over 2,000 years, or whatever it is, 2,000 years later or so, 1,800 years, he still ministers to God's people, even as his story has just touched each one of our hearts today in the 21st century. But he was changed by the grace of God and through the devotion of his mother who continued to pray for him. And thus this day we thank the women in our congregation and the women in our lives, particularly those who have prayed for us. And as a consequence, we too have put on the Lord Yeshua 
and have become his children and who are ones ready to serve him in an age in which there is desperate need for him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we rejoice in your wondrous workings. They are beyond understanding. But Lord, we delight in how you have grabbed hold of each one of our lives. Perhaps not for all of us it has been as dramatic as what Augustine experienced. But Father, it was equally significant and equally life-transforming. And so, Father, may we indeed respond to your words through your servant, Paul. And may we be ones who seek diligently to love one another, knowing we will never pay that debt in full. But you have paid that debt and thus empowered us to love you and one another. And as we go through our life with you, May our love for you grow deeper and deeper and our service to you be all the more fully fulfilled in honor of your great name. For it's in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Now, before we conclude.